Amen. 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 Hey, thank you. Sit down, but thank you. All these pastors are warning me, watch out for this Sunday. They'll come with a big Easter hangover. No Easter hangover here this morning. Y'all came ready to worship because here's the deal. Other religions in this world, they celebrate holidays. They celebrate holy days. And maybe it's the, the, the founder of that religion's birthday. Maybe it's a, a day they acknowledge that their religion started. But what we celebrated last week that our Savior is alive, guess what? He's still alive this week. And we'll show up next week and he'll still be alive. And he's changing lives. And people are following up with people who were here last week who didn't know the Lord, who were reaching out going, I, I, I need something. I don't know what it is. Please help. And they're getting help through Jesus Christ this week. God's at work. And it's so fun to watch us come and go, guess what? Our Savior's still alive and we're still going to come. We're going to sing our guts out, right? All right. Now you want to get in the word? Let's do it. First Thessalonians, turn there. I know, not First Samuel or Second Samuel, First Thessalonians. We're done with nine months through our study of the life of David. We're jumping into this letter. If you need a Bible somewhere under a seat close by, you can find one. And uh, you'll find this book, 1 Thessalonians, uh, towards almost all the way to the back of that Bible under there. But 1 Thessalonians, is we're beginning a brand new series here today, and I'm so excited for that. But before we jump into that, um, I got to tell you, uh, a couple years ago, Erica and I were getting ready to head out on a vacation. And so on vacation, I like to read books that like won't get my mind spinning at all about like ministry or leadership or anything like that. So I grabbed this book called Unbroken. Any of you ever read this book, Unbroken? On a scale of one to 10, for those of you who read it, how good is this book? It's a 12, yes, thank you. It's a 12. This book is unbelievable. One of the greatest stories of survival that I've ever read. Read. In fact, if World War II wasn't so well documented in history, I would swear most of this stuff is mythical. Uh, but here's this guy, Louis Zamperini is his name. And Louis Zamperini was like an Olympic class runner. And then into the military, his plane gets shot down. Don't worry, you still need to read the book. I won't give it away, all right? Plane gets shot down, survival on like sea and a raft, then unbelievably horrid conditions in a prisoner of war camp. And through all of this, through, through things Louis Zamperini should have never survived through, Louis Zamperini stepped foot back on American soil, uh, hugged his wife again. He survived. And the, here's the thing. As, as you read this book, and there's some things that he says in his story, if Louis were here today and we could ask him, what was the greatest factor in your survival through everything that you went through? I don't think he would say the greatest factor was his training on how to survive at sea, though that was a factor. I don't think he'd say his greatest training was trying to figure out really early on in the prisoner of war camp how to minimize the beatings and stay safe. I don't think he'd say that was the greatest factor. I think if Louis Zamperini were here today and he asked what, and we asked him, what's the greatest factor in your survival through everything that you went through? I think he'd reply with one word, hope. He believed the entire time on the raft that he would one day step back on American soil. He believed the entire time, every morning he got up in the prisoner of war camp, that one day he would come back and hug his wife again. He said, I think what I think he would say, what separated me from all of those who, who did not endure through that was that somehow I kept hope through the process of it. Here's the deal. Hope is a powerful force. 
Hope is a powerful force. We know this. We know when we've been living in seasons of great hope, great anticipation, believing that what is coming tomorrow is actually going to be for our good and for God's glory, and then we've walked through seasons of hopelessness. And we've known what it's like for our eyelids to open another day and go, oh, another day. How in the world am I going to endure another 24 hours? Hope is a powerful force. And that's why I'm so excited because we're jumping into this letter, this this letter um, written to a church in a city called Thessalonica. And we're for the next 12 weeks. This is a study in hope. Because what this letter is, it is a warm, encouraging, hope-filled message from this guy by the name of Paul to this church in Thessalonica. But before we can jump into the book, you need to bear with me here because when we begin a new series, we can't understand, hear this now, we can't understand the content of a book until we understand the context of a book. You agree with that? Say yes. It'd be like if we go to the mailbox, well, you know, you do this, I do this, we, we reach in our mailbox and after sorting through the layers and layers of junk mail, right, there's one thing that's actually worth opening. And we begin to immediately put that letter into context. We look at the return address. Who's it from? If there's no return address, when as soon as we open the letter up, we don't start at the beginning of the letter, we start at the where? The end of the letter. We got to know who this letter's from, and we got to know the context in which this letter is written if we're going to understand this book. And so verse 1, 1 Thessalonians, helps us understand a bit of the context here. It says, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. And so right away, we're told that this is a letter written by a guy named Paul. And so if you've grown up in church, you've been around church, you know who this guy named Paul is. If maybe you're new to church, you're like, okay, what's the the big deal of this guy named Paul? Paul was a man who hated Christians. He hated Jesus, and he hated everything about this new Jesus movement. In fact, he hated it so much that he was spending his life to make sure that Christians were, were arrested, were put away, and if they were killed in the process, so be it. One day, Paul's walking down a road, and on that road, Jesus Christ appears to Paul, and overnight, Paul becomes one of the greatest antagonists um, inflicting suffering on Christians to the greatest missionary the early church knew. Immediate, he's like, this Jesus has changed my life, and I'm going all over the known world to make sure other people hear about this Jesus. And Paul went to this city uh, in, called Thessalonica, and Acts chapter 17 actually tells us what happens when he goes. On the screen here, follow along with me. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, He reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. This Jesus is the Messiah. And some of them were persuaded. Hear this now. This is what happens every time the gospel is proclaimed. Some of them were persuaded 
and joined Paul and Silas. Look back at the very first letter of your first, first Thessalonians here, very first verse. It says, Paul, what's the next word? Silvanus. This is Silas. Uh, this is a, a, the Greek version of Silas' name. Silas was a companion with Paul on a secondary, second missionary journey. Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women, but the Jews were jealous. Some believe, now we have the flip side of the coin, but the Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men who have, uh, these men who have turned the world upside down, hear that now. Did you catch that? These are unbelievers, non-Jesus followers. And they're like, we've heard of these men. They've turned the world upside down. They've come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Paul, his companions, they have to slip out covered by night. They have to flee this city where they established this church in Thessalonica. Now, to understand a, a bit about the people in Thessalonica, we have to understand a little bit about the city. Every city has a distinct personality. If we took off from Indianapolis and went to Chicago, we would sense a unique personality between the two cities. Am I right? Any Chicago folks in here? We different, are we different down here from Chicago? Chicagoans or whatever you call it? Hop a plane from Chicago to New York City. Vastly different personality, am I right? Every block in New York City has a distinct personality. And so in order to understand the people of Thessalonica, we have to understand the city. Uh, Thessalonica, look at this map here. Thessalonica was kind of on the northwest part of the Aegean Sea. The Aegean Sea it kind of shoots off of the Mediterranean here. And if you zoom in on this part of this Thessalonica here, you'll see this was a port city. So Thessalonica was a major harbor city for its day. Not only was it a port city, though, Thessalonica also fell on one of the main east-west highways of the day called the Ignatian Way. And so this has, both by boat and by land, Thessalonica is one of the key trading centers of its day. It boasts over 100,000 people. It's the capital city of the region of Macedonia. And because it was a major trade center, not only did it become a major trade center in goods and business, Thessalonica in its day became a major trade center in philosophies and ideas and religious thought. The religious um, atmosphere, the religious personality of the city of Thessalonica, it was ruled by the Greek pantheon. Uh, the gods that we studied in school, Zeus and Artemis, and these different Greek gods, these are, when you walked into the city of Thessalonica, these are the gods, the lowercase g gods, in which the people of Thessalonica were worshiping. Thessalonica was also um, consumed with the worship of what's called the imperial cult, the former emperors. And so you have Zeus, 
and Artemis and Hermes and all these gods being worshiped. And then you have the worship of these former emperors. And so here's the deal. Here comes Paul, Acts 17, into Thessalonica. There is one true God, and there's one Savior, Jesus Christ, and you need to know him. Um, let's, let's vote. <clears throat> Did that go well for the most part or not well? Vote with me. Not well. You have this small group of people who embrace the message Paul preached, but you have what Acts 17 tells us, the rabble, who begin immediately to inflict as much pain on these people as they possibly can. And I don't, I don't want to keep this academic. I want us to feel this. I want us to get this. It's hard for us to get this in the culture and the country in which we live. But imagine we're here. Someone comes into our city and tells us about Jesus, and we all surrender. We begin to follow this Jesus guy. And the moment we do, the day we do, our neighbors are throwing rocks through our windows. We're heading out to the street. People are dragging, people are dragging our wives and kids away to be beaten. This is what the Thessalonians, when they followed Jesus, began to experience. And so Paul and these guys, they take off by cover of night because they're going to die. But as they go away, they're burdened over what the Thessalonians are experiencing now that they are following Jesus. And so what they do is they send, go back to the verse one here, Paul, Silvanus, and what's the third guy's name? They send Timothy back to check on how the believers in Thessalonica are doing. And what Timothy, the report Timothy comes back with absolutely blows them away. These believers in the midst of intense persecution, they aren't simply existing. They aren't getting by. They're thriving. They are, big theological term coming here, they're rocking it. And so Paul grabs a piece of paper and a pen, and he begins to just overflow in thankfulness to this group back here. And so what we see is we're going to study this letter <clears throat> over the coming weeks, as this letter is broken into two parts. Chapters one through three are this. Paul's just celebrating the faithfulness of these people. He's just saying, praise God for the work of Jesus we see going on in your hearts. And then the, the rest of this letter, chapters four and five, Paul begins to give them instructions on how to grow. And now these two parts of this letter are linked together with three prayers that we see. There's a prayer of thanksgiving to start us. Right in the middle of the book, there's a prayer for endurance. And then right at the end, there's a prayer of hope. And what we're going to study today is the beginning of this letter, this prayer of thanksgiving. But here's the deal. I want to challenge some of us here to commit to the next 12 weeks because you need your hope bucket filled up. Some of you need hope for some kids that have just wandered. And every night you just hit your knees and you pray for them. You need, you need hope to see that God can intervene in that. Some of you need hope <laughs> that this next season is going to be a little better than this past season's been. Some of you need hope 
that when the finish line of this when the finish line of this life comes, there's something greater out ahead. You want, we we all need our hope bucket filled up, right? And this is the study we're going to get in to do that. So pray with me and let's jump in, Father. Um, we, as your followers, should be the most hope-filled people that walk this planet. You are our hope. Our hope is not uh, rooted in any organization. Our hope is not rooted in any flesh of man. Our hope is rooted in you who are risen and alive, Lord. Our hope is rooted in you. And so, Father, I pray through this series, Lord, would the warmth of this letter come out of this pulpit? Father, when Paul celebrates the grace at work in this church, would we celebrate the grace at work in our church? Lord, when Paul gives instruction to this church, would we understand that he's giving instruction to our church? Father, we want to consume your word right here. We want to taste and see that it's good. We want it to shape our lives. And so, Lord, in the next 20 minutes, God, I pray, would this not be some academic exercise? Would this not be some religious routine? Father, would you drive your word into our heart for your name's sake? In Jesus' name, amen. First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. If you're ready to go, say, I'm ready. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Now don't just fly by that. Because Paul begins every letter the same way. And so we kind of read the introduction of Paul's letters and we're like, yeah, grace to you and peace, grace to you and peace, grace to you and peace. Grace to you and peace. Hasn't anyone told Paul peace is the last thing we're experiencing? It's like, is that memo? Timothy, did you forget the part of us, like the beatings and whatnot? It's like, no, 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 no. May peace reign in your heart as chaos rages around you in your life. Grace to you and peace. Now he jumps in here. We give thanks to God always for all of you constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father, and hear it now, your work of faith and your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, just stop there for a second. Paul, this is the beginning of that letter that we identified. Paul is just starting with unbelievable thanksgiving for these people. And what he's doing, why he's, why he's communicating thanksgiving is because he's going to highlight here four traits of authentic faith that he sees in the Thessalonian church. Four traits of authentic faith. And the first trait that he highlights here is a faith that works. A faith that works. Now, hear me now. Hear me now. Let's all get this. The clear teaching of the Bible is that we are saved by grace through faith alone. If you agree with that, say amen. There's nothing we add to it. It's not faith plus the work Brock can do to try to polish himself up. Remember what we talked about last week, we are dead. Capital D, E-A-D, dead. So there's no polishing we can do. Some, do you like that move right there? There's no polishing we can do We're dead. 
A savior has to breathe life into our corpse and bring us to life. We're saved by grace through faith alone, period, end of the discussion. But Paul says, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith. When we get that we have been a corpse breathed life into by Jesus Christ, raised us to life, immediately what we want to do is we want to grab the hard hat and we want to begin to work for this Savior who saved us. Am I right? Good works don't save us. Good works are certainly a proof, though, that we have been saved. And he says, I'm praising God that when when we came to you and we told you about this Jesus, you immediately, you grabbed the tool belt and the hard hat, and you began to work out your faith. You began to serve the Lord. I'm not putting this on, because you always would all feel like a village guy is preaching to you. (laughs) The high schoolers over here have no idea what I mean. (laughs) Village guy. He says, I praise God for your work of faith. That you've rolled up the sleeves, grabbed the tool belt, and put the hard hat on. You've gotten after it for Jesus Christ. And I just want to stop here, and I want want the tone and the message from this pulpit through this series to echo the warmth that we see Paul bring here. I praise God for his grace on our church. And how you all have a hard hat, tool belt, roll up your sleeves mentality. Let's get this done for Jesus Christ. If he has saved me, if he has given me life, then my life is his. I praise God for the faithful small group leaders of this church who are doing the frontline shepherding of this church. Who are crying with people through difficult days and are rejoicing with people through great days of celebration. I praise God for our soul care team here who's walking with people out of the deepest, darkest, most painful crisis of their life. I praise God for our student ministry workers who show up here every Sunday morning, pour themselves out, stay late, clean it up, and then come back Sunday night. And when our teenagers share their testimony one day, they're going to go, and then I met this guy. And then I met this girl. And through my teenage years, through those crucial teenage years, they were just there. They just poured themselves into me. I'm praising God for the work of faith of our people pouring in to our teenagers. I'm praising God for our kids' ministry team upstairs right now. Do you know right now, there are ladies holding your infants, praying over their life right now. And they're, (laughs) just picture the elementary class right now, herding cats. There are people herding those cats, seeking to make disciples out of those little hearts. I praise God for those serving in this church with administrative gifts, keeping all of this organized and functioning and putting systems and processes in place. We're moving office spaces as a church. We've grown out of the one. We're moving others. And I'm like, okay, let's move. 
And some of the people on our staff are like, uh, do you think maybe we should have like a meeting to plan that and design? I'm like, meeting? Like, let's just throw some stuff in a U-Haul and move. I have zero administrative bone in my body. I praise God for those working, working here to bring that structure. How thankful are you for those who show up here early on Sunday mornings while the rest of us are still in bed? You see, turn around, turn around, turn around. You see that curtain? It's like the big green monster of Fenway Park, okay? And every week, this crew shows up with sweat rings around their shirts and smiles on their face and give us a place to worship every week. I'm thankful for those who stay and tear this place down, sacrificing valuable family Sunday lunch times to do it. I'm thankful for the greeters and the ushers and the hospitality folks who make this place warm. You know the number one comment people tell me about our church? It has nothing to do with what happens on this stage. You know what they say? We're here because the people there are so welcoming. There's a genuine joy. I thank God for that. And right now, you don't even know this, but right now there are members of our safety team planted in here who are keeping us safe. If I pointed them out and disclosed their identification, I'd have to kill you, okay? And then they'd have to kill me because that's not safe. I'm thankful for a worship team who meets every Wednesday night and early every Sunday morning to usher us from the horizontal in which we've walked in all week to the vertical, all eyes on Jesus. And I'm thankful for a worship pastor who leads that team who is not a song leader. Did you see what he did today? Hey, we're about to sing this lyric here, and let's make sure we all understand that because our heart won't engage in this unless our head gets it. He's pastoring us to the throne room of Jesus, and this team with him is shepherding us to the throne room every week. And we're going to walk out, and we're going to be bombarded with all this horizontal garbage, and next Sunday we're going to come in, we're going to get our eyes on Jesus, and they will have worked their tail off all week to make sure that happens. I'm thankful. Paul looks at this church and he says, I'm watching you and your faith. You've got this hard hat, tool belt, sleeve rolled up, work for Christ kind of faith. Four traits of an authentic faith. The first one is a faith that works. And here's the deal, church. Let's never let that spirit stop. How jacked are you about the potential of us moving into a permanent facility one day? Yeah, you're pretty fired up about that? Pretty fired up about that? Can I just rain on that parade for a second? Don't worry, everything's still going very smoothly. We're still going. Everyone says the moment a congregation moves in, everyone goes, oh, we've arrived. Guys, that is just a tool for the work to only pick up. The hard hat is staying on. The tool belt's staying strapped. The sleeves are staying rolled up. God's entrusting to us a tool that we are to steward for the making of disciples all over this world. 
We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith. And then he goes on and he says this, in your labor of love, four traits of authentic faith is a faith that works. Secondly, is this, a love that costs me. Authentic faith bears out in a love that costs me something. This word here, this labor of love, this labor word, it means to toil. It means hardship. Paul's like, I, Timothy's come back and he's told me about your church. And he says, there's people there suffering pain, suffering hardship, suffering unbelievably for the good of others. When the church lives out what the church is supposed to be, and we are serving people in such a way that we get nothing out of it, they get 100%, we get zero. The watching world looks at that and goes, what? Paul's like, your labor of love. You're loving in such a way that it costs you, that you're sacrificing, that you're inflicting pain on yourself in order to serve someone else. I praise God for the labor of love bearing out in our church. For those just pouring themselves into people with no expectation of what they get out of it. And small groups, listen to me. This is why we do small groups. Small groups are not about some two-hour Bible study and then we just all go our separate ways. Small groups, the intended purpose is to take this these hundreds of people now who gather on Sundays and to get us in one circle and to truly do life together. To truly bear one another's burdens, to truly be there pouring out love. As, oh, you need, you need your car fixed? I, I, got, I know how to fix a car. I don't, okay? Yeah, I'll fix your car. When can we set it up? How much do I owe you? Not, nothing. Like, I'll, I'll go buy the parts. You buy the parts. I'll meet you there. We'll do it. I'm having dinner with this family from our church. It was like a Thursday night. I'm like, yeah, I got shingles blown off my house or whatever. It's not a big deal. They blow off every time a storm rolls in. Friday's our day off out of the office. Eric and I turn the corner back from a park, and there's the dude on my roof. I'm like, who's the whack job on our roof right now? It's the guy we had dinner with the night before. And like, I'm, I'm at the bottom of the ladder meeting him with my checkbook. He's like, what are you doing? No, 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 no. What? Paul's like, I praise God for your labor of love. You were loving each other in such a way that it costs you. You're, getting, you're, you're not getting anything out of it. You're just spending, but yet you're finding all this joy in loving that way. Remembering before our God your work of faith, your labor of love, and then here it is, your steadfastness of hope. This is a hope that endures. Four traits of an authentic faith is a faith that works, a love that costs me. Third is this, a, a hope that endures. A hope that endures. And remember now, this idea of steadfastness is endurance. Remember what these believers are going through. This isn't like people are saying some unkind things about them. They are experiencing physical pain. 
Most scholars think some of these new believers in Thessalonica have lost their life for following Jesus. Paul goes, your steadfastness of hope, you're enduring this, believing that something greater is ahead. And here's the deal, church. We will endure much in the present if we believe there's a finish line of hope out in the future. Am I right? This is what drives the Christian. This is what drives the Christian. This is what 2 Corinthians 4.17 says. For this light and momentary affliction. Stop right there. You're going, my affliction right now ain't not light and it's not momentary. It is heavy and it's lasting. Why in the world would he write this light and momentary affliction, this light and momentary affliction? He writes that because he's comparing it to what's coming ahead. This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The heaviest of heaviest pains that we experience on this earth will melt away the one day we stand before our Savior and he goes, well done, good and faithful servant. We'll go, I finally get it, light. Seemed really heavy, seemed like an anvil, seemed unbearable at the time, but I get it now. It's light. Compared to this, your steadfastness of hope. Keep going with me here. For we know, brothers, verse 4, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has, what's it say? That he has chosen you. Some of you are uncomfortable with this. What in the world does it mean here that God chose them? What, what is this getting at here? All throughout Paul's writing in the New Testament, you cannot deny it, that Paul writes over and over again of God's initiating of our faith. God's initiating of our faith. He says, um, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. That God has come and he's looked on us and he said, I'm calling those that, that where the gospel was preached in Thessalonica, I'm calling these people to myself here. I'm calling children unto myself. Paul writes it over and over and over and over again in his writing. And even Jesus has something to say about this in John chapter 6. He says, no one, no one, come, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. And so Paul is going, hey, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's called you as a children. Now, don't miss this because some of you are like really uncomfortable with this. You're like, how does this get into the whole like predestination and free will thing? Here's the deal. It's our responsibility to turn from our sin and embrace Jesus Christ as Savior. A couple people agree with that. But God has a responsibility. He does the initiating. He does the drawing. He does the wooing. No one comes to the Father unless the Father draws him. But how does that work? Listen, 
It's been debated for 2,000 years. I'm not going to solve it in two minutes here in the south side of Indiana, Indianapolis, right? How does that work? God in his sovereignty initiates the faith. We, uh, living within time and space here, we turn and surrender our lives to Jesus Christ. But don't miss this if you're wrestling with this. this. This doctrine, this idea that God draws us to himself is meant to bring comfort to us, not confusion. For we know, brothers, hear it, loved by God, that he has chosen you. We all were in the spiritual orphanage all orphans, and here comes our loving heavenly father who goes, I want that one, I want that one, I want that one, I want that one. But do you know what you're getting with that one? Yeah, I know exactly what I'm getting with that one. I want him. Why? Because of his unbelievable love that we can't even fathom. Do I want, ultimately, my salvation, resting on my ability to be smart enough to trust Jesus Christ as my Savior? Or do I want my salvation ultimately to rest on this all-loving, all-powerful God who's going to draw me and woo me and drag me to himself? I want the latter. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Enjoy small group discussions on that this week. Because, how do we know that he's chosen you? Because, here's how we know, our gospel came to you, hear this, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. How do we know that the Lord was wooing and drawing you to become a child of his? Because when we came to town and we shared this message, turn from your sin and embrace Jesus Christ as Savior, the gospel came to you, it says it here, not only in word, You didn't just hear it, but it came to you in, what's it say? And say it, say it, in power. The the Greek word is dunamis there, same root word that we get our English word dynamite. It says, when I preached this gospel message to you, it was like light the dynamite, boom. Something happened in your heart. The Spirit of God breathed power into that, which led to, what's it say here? Conviction. And some of us in the room right now, we can look at our own stories and go, yeah, I heard the gospel, I heard the gospel, I heard the gospel. I grew up in church and I heard the gospel over and over. But then there was this one day where the Lord wiped the blinders from my eyes. And he threw the lasso out and he just started pulling. That's the gospel coming in power with full conviction. Four traits of authentic faith, a faith that works, a love that costs me, a hope that endures, and then a gospel that's changed me. A gospel that's changed me. You know, there are three typical responses to the gospel. And you might have experienced even some of this last week with maybe who you invited to join you at Easter service. Uh, the, there's one response of a gospel that's this, anger. Uh, you need to turn from your sin and embrace Jesus through faith. What do you mean I need to turn? What are you, you saying I'm a sinner? You saying I mess up? Anger. I'm sitting in Starbucks this week. 
Don't you love when God sets up a gospel opportunity on a tee and says, hit it out of the park? There's a guy that I'm friends with in Starbucks, only in Starbucks, nowhere else, okay? Um, He's uh, Japanese. He's a Buddhist from Japan. And he um, walks in, and we sit across from each other at a table, and he goes, Easter day, Easter day. I'm like, you want to know what Easter is? Yes. I'm like, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Boom. Hit this out of the park. I begin to share with him all about Jesus, what it means to... And while this conversation's happening, unbeknownst to me, there's a Hindu from Nepal who goes up to another person in Starbucks, angry that I'm trying to make a Jesus man out of this Buddhist from Japan. That Hindu from Nepal went to another Christian. So now there are two gospel conversations happening, but one of these people are very, very angry over this message that's being shared. Do you want to hear how it ends with Yuki from Japan? You want to hear this? So I get to the end. I'm like, Yuki, do you want to know more about Jesus? He goes, no. <laughs> like, all right, I'll see you next week. We'll, uh, we'll circle back. One response is just anger. Another response is just indifference. Eh. No, 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 you need Jesus. He has to save you from your sin. You need him. You're gonna, you'll be separated from him forever and eternity. Eh. You don't get it. You don't get the eternal way to the, eh. That's where all my buddies will be anyway. Just indifference. And then this third one, and this is what we're getting at when the Lord, conviction and change. When the gospel comes, and the Lord draws us to himself, a gospel that saves us will always change us. It changes the very fabric, the very root of our heart. And he says here, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and your labor of love and your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you. You're a child. Take comfort in that. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. Here's what we're getting at today. Thanksgiving abounds. Thanksgiving abounds. When the people of Jesus live out authentic faith in Jesus. The Lord's not after our looks authentic faith, but isn't. He's not after an ingenuine spirit. He's after an authentic faith. And as Paul praises God for the work of authentic faith in this church, I praise God for the work of authentic faith in this church right here. God is at work here. I want to show you, um, I want to show you our church two years ago. Ready? There it is. Some of you in here, you remember those days? Harvest Bible Chapel, Indy South, two years ago. Here's a shot from last Easter. Shot from last Christmas. 
Now here's the deal. We look at pictures like this and what we immediately, our eye goes to is just the number of people. It's not why I showed that picture. God is at work here because in each one of the hearts of the people represented who sat in those rooms, whether we were 30 people sitting in a classroom at Indiana Wesleyan or hundreds of people gathered in this room right here, here's what's happening. People are living out their faith in Jesus Christ. And there's labor of love happening amongst this body, this ecclesia, this gathering. There's steadfastness of hope. From that picture two years ago, some of you have walked through some of the darkest days that you've walked through, and yet you've kept an unbelievable hope in the midst of that. In the last two years, the gospel has come, not in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction and people's eternities have been forever altered. And next Sunday, we're gonna show up here and people are gonna end up baptismal and we're gonna go crazy. If you've never been to a harvest baptism service yet, like get ready. We're a bunch of whacks, all right? We just praise God for the work that he's done in two years. The work of faith, the labor of love, the steadfastness of hope, a gospel that's changing hearts. And yet hope, hope, stand with me now, hope isn't ultimately about what's happened in the past. Hope is all about what we're looking toward in the future. Am I right? And if you believe our best days are yet ahead, say amen right now. Our best days are yet ahead. Pastor Joe and Becca, they're back. He preached early in April and I'm driving them around the south side, showing them what's going on down here. And I'm just looking at the sheer number of cars and houses how many people do we have left to reach for Jesus Christ? How many of your neighbors are one day going to be standing in the baptistry over here going, and then this weird neighbor came over one day. And we began a relationship and they told me about Jesus. And this hope I had always been longing for, finally, finally, I could put words to that hope. We have work left to do. Amen? But take heart and have hope. The Lord is going to do a greater work ahead. Father, would you fill our hearts with hope here? Thankfulness is all about what's rooted in what you've already done. Lord, we are a thankful people. The work that you've done is a work only of you, Lord. This is all of you. And hope is rooted in what we expect ahead, what we anticipate ahead. Lord, we anticipate hope-filled anticipation of our greatest good and your greatest glory ahead. Lord, as we pour ourselves out for this mission that you've given us of the making of disciples all over this community and all over this world. Our hope is built on nothing less, Lord, than you, your blood and your righteousness on our behalf. You are our hope. You are our everything. Lord, I thank you.
that we get to gather as a church full of people living out authentic faith in you. Lord, keep doing the work you're doing. You get all the glory and praise in your name. Amen. My hope is built on